At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. This is not a forever war, and it's not a forever expense for us either. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, with our own Squawk Box host, Andrew Ross Sorkin. You just met with Zelensky. I saw Zelensky this morning. Between his meetings with the leaders of Ukraine, Israel, and others, Secretary Blinken sat down with Andrew for a wide-ranging conversation on many topics, like the importance of Taiwan-China relations for the world economy. 50% of the world's commerce every single day goes through that strait. The semiconductors right. made on Taiwan are powering the world in every conceivable way. The nuances of war in the Middle East. What we're focused on is trying to make sure that October 7th never happens again. That should be the bar. That should be the measure. And Israel has made good progress. Protecting civilians in conflict. Far too many Palestinians, innocent Palestinians have been killed and managing the humanitarian and economic interests in war zones around the world. This has been an attack on international commerce, international shipping, not an attack on Israel, not an attack on the United States. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Squawk Pod reports U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken begins right now. We're here. It's the 54th World Economic Forum in Davos. The world's leaders in business and in politics have all convened in Switzerland, and we're right in the thick of it. For us at Squawk Box, we've been doing this about a decade, broadcasting in the Alps. In between meetings, breakfasts, panels, the Davos churn, global leaders swing by our CNBC set for big interviews, like this next one. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has a lot on his plate. Taiwan has elected a new president amid escalating tensions with China. Ukraine continues to defend itself from the Russian invasion. In the Middle East, the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza has passed 100 days. Palestinian civilians are caught in the middle. And Iran-backed Houthi rebels based in Yemen are ramping up attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Sort of marathon sprint here. Yeah. Leaders from each region are here in the Swiss Alps for this World Economic Forum, and meeting with most of them is the United States' top diplomat, Antony Blinken. Just hours after he arrived himself, Secretary Blinken sat down with Andrew Ross Sorkin on Tuesday afternoon, January 16th. Here's that conversation. I want to uh, thank uh, the Secretary for joining us uh, today. It's great to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. Uh, here in Davos. This is your first interview uh, since uh, a lot of things have happened. Uh, the Taiwan election results have come in, uh, the UK joint attacks uh, on the Houthis uh, in the Red Sea, and since the conclusion of this uh, 10-day stop, mm-hmm. now you're here in Davos. President of Israel is on his way here. Uh, the Premier of China is here. Uh, you now have uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine here. So a lot going on, and we want to touch on all of these different component parts. But You just got off a a plane uh, this morning here. Uh, What is your ultimate goal in terms of coming to Davos? And what are you you trying to do? Well, first, when you went through that litany of things, it it, it shows you why, for better or worse, we're in a growth industry these days. Um, But look, here in Davos, it's an incredible convening point. Uh, You've got, of course, leaders from the entire world coming here, including from many of the places you just mentioned. Uh, You, of course, have uh, an extraordinary showing from the, uh, the private sector. 
critical partners in so much of what we're trying to do around the world, uh, have everyone in the same place at the same time, right. uh, not only convenient, it also uh, creates some really interesting, uh, what's the word, synergies, right. um, just bringing people together uh, in interesting ways. Davos is a great place right. to do that. Uh, let's go down the list of uh, maybe crises or big, at least hot topics that are being discussed here, mm -hmm. starting with uh, U.S.-China relations mm -hmm. As it relates to the Taiwan election, uh, new president in place, uh, you came out with some comments congratulating uh, him on his victory. Uh, what do you believe it means for uh, U.S. and China right now? Does it up the risk that something's going to happen? Well, look, it means a few things. First and foremost, we congratulated the, the president-elect, but also the people of Taiwan on their robust democracy and the great example that that sets uh, not just for the region, uh, but for the entire world. When it comes to uh, Taiwan itself and when it comes to uh cross-strait relations. We've been focused on, on one thing and one thing intensely with many other countries around the world. Peace, stability, no change to the status quo, the peaceful resolution of any differences. And there's a reason that that matters. And it matters to virtually everyone here in Davos. You know right. this, 50% of the world's commerce every single day goes through that strait. The semiconductors right. made on Taiwan are powering the world in every conceivable way. If that's interrupted or disrupted in any way, it's bad for everyone. Okay, so but let me then ask you about what has turned into a war of words. You congratulate him. This is the China Foreign Ministry spokesman saying that your comments, quote, send a gravely wrong signal to the Taiwan independent separatist forces. We strongly deplore and firmly oppose this and have made serious representations to the U.S. side. What do you make of that? As it happens, um, I met um, just a day before the election with a very senior Chinese leader in Washington. Um, this is one of the questions that we focused on. And we've made very clear what we stand for when it comes to, uh, to Taiwan and China. First, we've had a one China policy for a long time. That remains our policy. It won't change. And we've reaffirmed that. At the same time, as I said, we are standing resolutely for maintaining the status quo, right. for peace and stability. China has to make decisions about uh, what it right. will do and what it won't do. But I think the approach that they've shown uh, in recent years has actually been totally counterproductive to their interests by trying to exert pressure uh, on Taiwan, economic pressure, military right. pressure, diplomatic pressure, isolation. It's only reinforced right. uh, many of the right. very people that they but don't do want to see. This message reinforced. is getting confused because right after you congratulated him, President Biden was asked about the election as well. He came out and he said, we do not support independence. That goes to the one China policy. So at the same time, we're saying democracy is great, but actually independence is not. No, that's been our, that's been our policy for as long as I can remember. Uh, and it remains our policy. And again, it's a policy right. that um, ensures to the best of our ability that we have peace, that we have stability, uh, that we don't have a status right. quo that's disrupted in ways that are going to have repercussions you, for everyone around the world. What do you think the risk is, though, uh, that there ultimately is a takeover? Uh, President Xi has said that he ultimately wants to bring Taiwan mm -hmm fully into China. I spoke with the uh, prior president, or maybe she's still the current president, mm -hmm. but uh, just uh, last just uh, last year uh, at the Dilba conference. And she said that she didn't believe that the Chinese could uh, pursue a takeover given their economic challenges mm -hmm. today. Do you believe that's accurate? Look, I'm not going to speculate. I'm not going to get into hypotheticals. I can just tell you what we're focused on, which is maintaining uh, peace and stability. And we've been very clear with, with China about that. We've been very clear uh, with Taiwan about that. And that's what we're focused on. At the same time, we have a big, uh, vitally important relationship with China. It's probably both the most complex and, and arguably the most consequential of any relationship we have. Uh, we're also focused on that. 
Let me ask you a question because we've been talking to a lot of CEOs here, including folks who make chips, mm -hmm. uh, Intel, mm -hmm. uh, Qualcomm, and so many others. We, are on, we have a big effort in the United States to try to bring manufacturing back yeah. to the U.S., uh, ultimately by 2030 to be chip independent. Mm -hmm. If and when that happens, does Taiwan become more or less strategically important to the United States? Well, first, you're exactly right that we have a, a major effort underway. And one of the major achievements of this administration, President Biden, has been this investment in ourselves, including notably with the Chips and Science Act, uh, to make sure that we have that manufacturing capacity here. But look, this is going to take some time. Taiwan remains vitally important when it comes to chips. But as I said, beyond chips, 50 percent right. of the world's commerce goes through that strait every single day. That's not going to change. And so it will always be strategic. It will important. always be uh, important. Are you planning to meet with anyone from the Chinese delegation while you're here in Davos? Um, I don't think we're crossing over. But as I said, we had a very senior Chinese official in Washington just a couple of days ago. Are we supposed to read anything, though, into that? No. I mean, they have a big delegation here. This, no, no, no. This year. Quite literally, we had one of the most senior foreign policy people in Washington. We had extensive meetings with him. I did. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, did. Uh, and we'll continue to do that. Look, right. we've um, since my trip to Beijing this past summer, we've reengaged uh, at uh, every senior level, most important between President Biden and President Xi. Right. That engagement continues. It's really important that we have this ongoing high level communication first to make sure that we avoid any miscalculations, right. miscommunication, because do you think there's the, better communication? So people will say, oh, they're, they're in the same town together. Why aren't they meeting? Together? No, no. Look at the look, look at the track record right. over the last six months. Look at the trip that, that I made. Then many other members of the cabinet made secretary of the Treasury, secretary of Commerce, uh, John Kerry. But most important, right. President Xi and President Biden. And we after that meeting in San Francisco, which produced real results, good for the American people uh, in a number of ways. We're continuing that, and that effort will right. extend into this year. Uh, let's pivot uh, to a number of other uh, crises that are taking place uh, around the world. Uh, the Red Sea. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the latest there, because since the U.S. and U.K. launched those joint strikes against the Houthis, uh, Houthi targets in Yemen, there have now been a number of attacks since. So how successful uh, was that attack, and what does escalation at this point look like to you? Well, first, Andrew, the most important thing is this. What are the stakes here? Um, We've not wanted uh, to see escalation anywhere since October 7th. And right. we've been working every single day to prevent it, including in the Red Sea. And when the Houthis started these attacks, uh, we pressed very hard for them, them to stop, but without escalation of any kind. The reason it's so important there is this. Here again, 15% of commercial traffic is going through that strait every single day. 30% of the world's container ships. We're seeing international repercussions for these attacks. Thousands of ships right. have had to reroute. Uh, go uh, move around the uh, and away from the Suez Canal. Uh, it's adding costs to everyone. Insurance costs are going up. Shipping times are going up. That means that whatever is being shipped is getting more expensive. This has been an attack on international commerce, international shipping, not an attack on, on, on Israel, not an attack on the right. United States. That's why more than 40 countries came together to condemn right. what the Houthis were doing. It's why other countries came together to say, if this continues, there are going to be consequences, not for purposes of escalating, but for purposes right. of getting them to stop. Uh, you were just in Israel. The president of Israel is coming here. You spent, you spent time with Netanyahu as well. When you talk about trying to eradicate Hamas, but at the same time, there is a push clearly uh, to uh, help and have uh, targeted strikes so that they avoid civilians. Mm -hmm. Do you believe you can er eradicate fully Hamas uh, without a civilian and innocent casualties? What we're focused on is trying to make sure that October 7th never happens again. That should be the bar. That should be the measure. 
And Israel has made good progress in um, doing to Hamas uh, what needs to be done so that it can't mm -hmm. uh, do October 7th again. That's what uh, Israel should be focused on. That's what uh, we are focused on. At the same time, right. we've said from day one that how Israel does that matters vitally. And that is right. especially true when it comes to civilian right. casualties. Far too many Palestinians, innocent Palestinians have been killed. And of course, for those who um, are living in Gaza, uh, they're in a very, very difficult, dire situation. We're trying to get much more humanitarian assistance into them. So since uh, your visit, uh, Netanyahu said the, the following. He said, we are continuing the war to its conclusion to total victory. No one will stop us. Mm. What do you make of that? Is that a message to you and the United States? I, I can't speak for the prime minister. Uh, I can just tell you that um, from day one, We've strongly supported Israel's right to defend itself, strongly supported its right to try to ensure that October 7th never happens again. But at the same time, we want to see this conflict come to an end as quickly as possible. Right. And until it does, we want to see everything possibly done right. to protect civilians and to get assistance to those who need it. Too many people are suffering in this conflict, right. and we're trying to do what we can to alleviate that suffering. Uh, there is clearly a divide uh, around the country and around the world uh, about how uh, the Israelis are going about this and about the U.S.'s support for it, including inside the White House itself, uh, with members of government literally walking off the job. I want to read you something that Speaker, Speaker Johnson tweeted out uh, in the past 24 hours. He says, any government worker who walks off the job to protest U.S. support for our ally Israel is ignoring their responsibility and abusing the trust of taxpayers. They deserve to be fired. What do you think of that? Look, we've had, I can just speak for the State Department. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a number of people in the department um, since October uh, raise questions, raise concerns, raise criticisms of uh, policies, policies that Israel is pursuing, policies that we're pursuing. And the kind of place that I want to have, the institution I want to have, is a place where people feel comfortable doing that. Right. Uh, we have something called the dissent channel that allows anyone in the department uh, right. to raise a concern. Um, we've had a number of those. I read every single one. But walking off the job, look, fireable? From my, from my perspective, I want to make sure that people feel that they can um, say what they believe, express themselves. But then, do they, to, but they, then do they ultimately have to get behind they, the they, position they of they the State Department? They ultimately have to, have to be on the job and do their jobs. But uh, the main thing is this. Uh, people feel the need to, uh, to speak up and speak out. That's, that's a cherished part of our democracy. It's a cherished part of uh, uh, my view of, of, right. of patriotism, but people also need to be uh, beyond the job, do the job. Look, we see this across many administrations. Right. If there are policies an administration is pursuing that uh, individuals object to in a way that they, they can't continue uh, to work, well, that's their decision. That's their choice. They have to make that decision. Let me ask you a question about two-state solution in Israel. You've been working hard on that mm -hmm. and starting to think about what things might look like on the other side. Um, there's a lot of folks who are getting on board with you. Uh, Netanyahu is not mm. yet there yet, as are a number of, of folks in Israel itself. Mm. In terms of the trust that the Israeli people have to have about their own security, do you imagine a two-state solution that doesn't require some period of time where there is, for lack of a better word, an occupation mm. of, of, uh, of, of, of the Palestinian mm. area uh, for a period of time to create that trust? Look. Or do, you, or do you think that undermines ultimately the long-term trust of both sides? Look, let me put it this way. First of all, there's an incredibly powerful equation for Israel's future, for its security. Uh, and it's this. And it's different than anything we've had in the past. Unlike any time in the past, virtually all of its neighbors, uh, its Arab neighbors, its Muslim neighbors, 
are prepared, indeed want to integrate Israel into the region. And they're prepared to give it the kind of security assurances and commitments and guarantees that they never would have given in the past. But they're equally committed to uh, a pathway to a Palestinian state because they believe strongly, and we believe as well, that until that question is resolved, uh, you're never really going to have peace and stability. And for that matter, Israel's never going to know true security. So when when you put together integration in the region, uh, Israel's normalization of relations with, with every country, security assurances and commitments, a Palestinian state, right. you've created an entirely new region. And then Israel's biggest challenge, biggest problem for us as well, Iran, is isolated. Um, it answers that problem very powerfully as well. Now, Israel in this moment, of course, is focused on Gaza. It's focused on October 7th. But when that ends, they have to make fundamental decisions about right. their future these are hard decisions, not easy to do, but there's a new equation that more, in a way that was never possible in the past is possible now. Do you need a new leader of the Palestinian Authority to do it? Look, you need, uh, you need governments, uh, leaders that are prepared to right. make hard decisions. But is the Palestinian well, Authority ultimately the right ruling authority? And is the person who's in charge of that Palestinian Authority right now the person who you think can actually bring this all together? Look, we've said that we would welcome, more than welcome, I think we, we need to see reform of the Palestinian Authority to make sure right. that it's delivering for that its means, people. That means it, has the capacity to, it means a whole variety of things. The Palestinians have to decide that for themselves. Um, a number of other uh, leaders in the region are talking about the Palestinian people are prepared to do that? Uh, I think the Palestinian leaders, um, but more important, the Palestinian people, right. what do they most want? Uh, they most want effective governance that can deliver for them. Now, that requires two things. It requires, in and of itself, effective governance. It also requires Israel to be supportive of a Palestinian authority so that uh, it has a chance to deliver. Those right. two things need to come together. How far away do you think they are on that? Listen, uh, right now in the middle uh, of this conflict, it's, it's hard when, you've, when you're really plunged into that to necessarily see that future. But I think it could be on us uh, relatively quickly because this conflict will end. Right. Um, and when it does, decisions have to be made. You're in a place right now where again, Arab countries, including countries like Saudi Arabia, are prepared to do things in their relationship with Israel they were never prepared to do before. Um, that opens up an entirely different future, a much more secure future. But you have to resolve the Palestinian question. Mm-hmm. Arab countries are saying this. They're saying, look, we're not going to get into the business, for example, of rebuilding Gaza, only to have it leveled again right. in a year or five years and then be asked to rebuild it again. We've got to also get to the fundamentals. And in terms of Israel's own security, the Arab piece of the equation and the Palestinian peace. That's the way to true, lasting security. Uh, let's pivot now uh, to the issue of Ukraine. You spent some time with President Zelensky right, right here in Davos just this morning. Mm. What are you talking about? Uh, oh, skiing. No, uh, we, uh, of course, are focused on the uh, ongoing Russian right. aggression against Ukraine. And even as we speak, the Russians continue to launch missiles at uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, at civilians, uh, at apartment buildings. Um, so we talked about two things. We're focused on um, making sure that Ukraine has what it needs to get strongly through this this next year, Does 2024. It? Does it have enough? So we need to do two things. Uh, we need to make sure that with Congress, right. we get the supplemental funding that President Biden's asked for. We're working very hard on that. I believe strongly that there is bipartisan support right. in both houses. We what just need to land it, What happens if it doesn't happen? Look, there's no magic pot of money. If we don't get that money, it's a real problem. It's a real problem for uh, for Ukraine. I think it's a problem for us. Uh, and our leadership around the world. But here's the thing. Of that money uh, that we're asking for, uh, $50 billion gets spent right 
back in the United States on uh, that 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 money to procure items for Ukraine's defense. It's made in America. (laughs) These are American jobs. Right now, we have our allies and partners around the world who are actually providing the majority of the support to to Ukraine. We have more burden sharing when it comes to Ukraine than in any other instance I can remember in the 30 years that I've been doing this. So this is a common endeavor. And right now, Russia continues to suffer a strategic failure in Ukraine. We have a strong interest in making sure that persists. And if we let Putin get away with this, um, if we drop our guard and everything we're doing for Ukraine, um, then you open a Pandora's box and he will not stop with Ukraine and others, other would-be aggressors in other parts of the what world, think he would they'll take next? the lesson. Look, I think he would uh, go full tilt on Ukraine and then NATO countries. And of course, if he attacked a NATO country, we have an Article 5 obligation under NATO uh, to uh, work to assist them. That would bring us in directly. Right. We want to prevent that and make sure that as a one last thing on this, though, it's so important. This is not a forever war and it's not a forever uh, expense for us either. Even as we're helping Ukraine in the moment to defend itself, working with dozens of other countries, we're working so that Ukraine can stand strongly on its own two feet, militarily, economically, democratically. Private sector investment. Um, Our former Secretary of Commerce, Penny Pritzker, who's working, uh, leading the administration effort to get private sector investment in Ukraine, just came back from Ukraine with a delegation of CEOs. There's clearly tremendous opportunity there. We're, We're helping with 30 other countries to set them up with a force for the future so that they can deter aggression going forward. And the reforms that they're pursuing, that they have to pursue in order to get into the European Union and to attract private sector investment. You put those three things together, you can see a Ukraine that not only survives, but that thrives. That's the best answer to Putin. And it's also the best answer for us because it means they'll be able, they'll be off on their own two feet. We've talked about a a number of issues around around the world that you're dealing with Mm -hmm. now. I'm curious if you look at them and think of them as all idiosyncratic unto themselves, mm-hmm. or you think that the United States, our role and in influence and perhaps diminished influence has impacted and helped create these moments. You've, you've heard a lot of critique about that. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, here's what I've taken away from, from about 30 years of doing this. One, when America's not engaged, when we're not leading, then one or two things. Either someone else is, and maybe not in a way that advances our interests and values, or maybe just as bad, no one is, and you get a vacuum that's filled usually by bad things before it's filled by good things. What I'm hearing around the world everywhere I go is um, a thirst, a hunger, a desire for our engagement, right. for our leadership. But they also talk the about the polarization in Washington mm-hmm. and the dysfunction in Washington. Well, we've done two things. Yes, we have those challenges, and happily in this job, I don't do politics uh, back home. But we've done two things that have been very powerful and that put us in a position of strength that we were not in in recent years. One, as I said, we've made investments in ourselves, and people know that. The Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Act, the IRA, all of these things are resonating around the world because people see that we're serious about our future. Second, the first thing that I was asked to do by President Biden was to roll up my sleeves and have everyone in the State Department do the same thing, re-engage our alliances and partnerships, rejuvenate them, reimagine them in some cases. And it's those relationships, those partnerships that are so vital because just as our leadership is essential, Finding new ways to cooperate with others is more important than it's ever been. We're doing that. We have more convergence now, Andrew, with Europe, uh, with Asia, on how to deal with a Putin or how to deal with the challenges posed by China. One of the things that's weighing over this entire meeting and a lot of conversations has been what's gone on on in the United States and in Iowa Mm -hmm. and this being an election year. What do you think happens if former President Trump becomes the president when it comes to all of these issues that you're talking about internationally? Look, as I said, I don't do politics. I do do policies. So what I'm focused on 
is trying to pursue the best possible foreign policy to advance the interests of the American people. That's what President Biden asked me to do and the entire team. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're talking about China earlier. Well, one of the agreements that came out of the meeting between President Biden and President Xi that we worked on for months and that the president brought over the finish line was an agreement from China to work productively with us on dealing with the number one killer of Americans aged 18 to 49, fentanyl, a synthetic opioid. We now have China cracking down on the companies that are making the chemical precursors that get shipped halfway around the world, turned into fentanyl. That's something that's making a real and practical difference in the lives of Americans. Mr. Secretary, I want to thank you for joining us from Davos, Switzerland. Good to be with you. you. Thank you very very much. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Thank you for tuning in to this special Squawk Pod Reports and for tuning in this week as we bring you key interviews from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Squawk Pod is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline Rahotis. John Lesration is our editor. Have a great day. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.